Hi, everyone. I'm so excited that I get to be part of this keynote conversation with Dr. John Powell, um, really digging into these uh, the big questions I feel like of our time um, about othering and belonging. Um, I first want to thank Comnet for inviting me, inviting us to be in conversation. And I definitely want to thank you, John, for um, making the space frankly, for me to grapple, for us to grapple with this moment in time, these questions of belonging, and what happens when we actually actively leave folks behind. Um, John Powell is an internationally recognized expert in civil rights and civil liberties, and works on a whole range of issues centered around race, structural racism, and ethnicity, and is the director of the Othering and Belonging Institute. And I'm Carmen Rojas, president and CEO of the Marguerite Casey Foundation. The reason we thought this conversation would be um, an important uh, peak end to, this, to this, con this convening that's been happening is really that there, we're at, a, at a, what I believe is a critical juncture of trying to define uh, who is in movement and who is not in movement. And I will say it's something that I've been really grappling with. As John has heard me say over the last couple of weeks, I come to this work really trained um, as a fighter. And that has served me up until now, right? The, the ability to name the opposition, the ability to name those folks who benefit from the pain, the harm, the hunger in our communities. And I'm realizing that, that while that is a helpful and true endeavor, that it has um, atrophied my ability as a leader to actually see the ground for what is possible, to like lean into uh, what Robin Kelly calls freedom dreaming. And I think that that's a real opportunity that people in philanthropy and people in our sector have. And it's a muscle that we often don't, um, we don't work out. And my experience of being in spaces with John has been that, um, he has the spaciousness, like the curiosity and the questions to be able to do that. So I, I'm just going to jump into questions, John, if you're if you're ready, if you're open to it. Uh, I'm more than ready and been looking forward to it. It's a delight to be in your company. Uh, and I've already used many of the things that you've said uh, in subsequent webinars and speeches and more importantly, in my own life. <laughs> we'll, we'll find the opportunity to bring up love. We'll find the opportunity to bring up love. Um, tell us about the genesis of your work on belonging. Well, you know, um, it's interesting. The, um, I started the Institute uh, almost 10 years ago. It was called the Haas Institute for a Fair and Inclusive Society. Um, and we have multiple sectors, multiple clusters of uh, dealing with LGBTQ, dealing with gender, dealing with race, dealing with uh, socioeconomic, uh, dealing with religion, dealing with disability, uh, and so on. Uh, and one of the things that was clear, first of all, is that everybody was actually grappling with being other. Uh, and so that became one of our themes of sort of addressing othering. And uh, I often say that the solution to othering is not saming. So you don't melt everybody into the one big pot. Uh, but you actually uh, recognize their, their humanity as it is, uh, unconditionally, um, and that they get to participate in shaping the world in which they live. Uh, and that's belonging. 
And so that became like a central function of what we're doing. And about three years ago, uh, as we were growing, we decided um, to go through a name change. And one of the things that's interesting is that a lot of people felt like, don't say othering because that's negative. Just say belonging, just go straight to belonging. But other people, especially people from the community said, no, we need to sharpen belonging by stating what the problem is. Uh, this Yes, belonging is important, but we're reacting to deep othering that's happening all around the world. Um, and uh, Carmen, you know, like a lot of things, I, I remember when I met Joanna Macy years ago, she said, so tell me your, your origin story. Mm. And I said, well, you know, Joanna, we have many stories and none of them are completely true, even if they're not false. Mm. Uh, and she said, I know, I know, just pick one. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I feel like we do tell stories uh, about ourselves, about our community, and stories are quite important. And so I'd like to think I started belonging quests when I was five years old playing marbles in Detroit. But I think that's probably not accurate. <laughs> I think it's more recent than that. But I do think the thread, if not the words, the thread of belonging is just so central to having a healthy life, having a loving family, having mm -hmm. friends that even if we don't use the word, that we're actually, I'd say all of us actually are in a space of trying to belong, if not. Mm -hmm. uh, and to think about the last thing is that we're literally born in the world attached to another human being. Yes, not a metaphor, right? It's like, it's there physically. Yeah. Um, was it easy? Was it easy to, the, what are the challenges? What are the what are the things that you have needed to confront to, I don't know if surrender is the right word, but it's the word that comes to mind for me, to surrender to the idea that belonging is something that we can choose to live into. What are the things for you? Um, the draw of othering is great. Yes, yes. Well, it's, it's interesting. Uh, when I was probably in my 20s and early 30s, I was um, and even younger, you know, I think about my relationship with my parents. I was full of piss and vinegar. And like you, uh, you know, you, you get a certain charge from othering. And so we talk about the circle of human concern where no one uh, is outside the circle, including the earth. So it's not even just human concern. Now people say that's woo-woo, that's not possible. Uh, and uh, that certainly goes against the teaching of people like Saul Valensky, who is sort of one of the godfathers of modern organizing, where he says, you know, you create conflict, you create tension, you want tension. That's a good thing. You take that energy that comes from the fight and use it. And you do get energy from fighting. You do get the energy from calling out the other. Uh, um, and to some extent, uh, I was very much into that. And mm -hmm. then I had a couple of things happen to me that actually shifted that. Part of it was frankly a, a meditative practice. Uh, and seeing sort of the anger and othering inside me mm. uh, without an object, just seeing that anger and, and realizing to some extent it has, I'm not saying anger is always bad. I'm not suggesting that at all. King talks about righteous indignation, yeah. um, but he talks about the indignation that God feels. So mm. we're feeling indignant in behalf of God, but a lot of indignation that we experience is just petty. You know, mm. so Old rage. Someone took my preference spot. You know, there's, not, there's nothing righteous about it except it feels good. Totally. Uh, and and so I guess I would say the thing that sort of guided me to this is both um, um, spiritual practice, but also just being around people, including my family, 
that I don't always agree with, but I profoundly love. Yeah. It's sort of time to deal with the fact that you can profoundly love people and not agree with them. Mm. Oh, God, like the, the, you know, when you hear something and it lands on your heart in the right way, but your whole entire body rejects it, that's, <laughs> I'm in that moment. And so for folks who are listening to this conversation, um, I confessed uh, in our prep conversation with John that I'm like really grappling. And I said this at the opening with this idea, because I know that one of the gifts of running a foundation in this moment is that um, we have an opportunity that we ha don't have the excuse of resource. We don't have the uh, excuse of access. We don't have the excuse of power of not having these things in service of belonging. And um, I'm trying to make sure that I uh, am watching and living towards the future possible and not in like the present or the past petty. I'm going to take, <laughs> I'm going to take these, uh, take the petty all the way through as a, as an organizing thing, because I think you're right. And the place for me that I've been, uh, really struggling is, you know, I am an abolitionist. Like I don't believe that prison, that prison should exist, that policing should exist. I, I think, um, both personally and um, community-wide have seen the, the deep, deep harm committed um, by policing on our communities. And so I intellectually understand that we need a new way to address harm, a new way to address hurt, a new way um, to reconcile. So I know that in my in my heart, and I think many of us know that, and also experience the deep satisfaction when a police officer is sent to prison. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it feels like the most, the truest contradiction of this moment, right? Where we have people who are on the one side saying that these systems don't work, and on the other side, uh, wanting these systems to hurt the people that we feel like are hurting our community. Mm -hmm. um, I'm wondering, um, for me, like the, the meta question is that we are confronting a set of very clear structural and systemic expressions of white supremacy in this moment. And I am very tempted to both uh, call out, but also to penalize those people who have made these systems work. And my hunch is that you would caution against that. Is that right? I definitely would caution against that. Um, so we're in a very complicated space. Um, and the space is both made more complicated also, but made much more beautiful. They were in it with each other. Mm. And so, um, Carmen, you talked about being an abolitionist, and uh, you know, policing has goes back in the United States to slave patrols, to uh, um, the, our love with guns, go to uh, Reconstruction and the, the the enslaved people becoming free, and then white people arming themselves. Yeah. Um, and and so our country is actually like a lot of countries, uh, what uh, was called uh, the American dilemma, mm -hmm. a country that sort of uh, purports to really care about freedom, really care about equality, uh, and yet uh, built on the backs of uh, enslaved people 
uh, working stolen land and, and annexing uh, a, a third of Mexico. I mean, so it's like these contradictions and part of it is to hold these contradictions and people are in diff different places. So we did a survey with Prosperity Now uh, on looking at the issue of abolition, the issue of defund and abolish the police in part because we felt like it's such an important issue but it's also an issue that it's not just dividing the people of color and white community, it's dividing the people of color community itself, and even more specifically, the black community. And what we found is that people were all over the place. Mm -hmm. There was some general deep consensus that something transformational need to be done. Mm -hmm. What that is, is actually complicated. And it should be complicated. We're a big country, uh, 330 million people, uh, a size of a subcontinent, uh, people with different life experiences, people with different age, different, there's not going to be one voice. And so mm -hmm. part of the thing is, can I have my convictions, but still listen? Mm -hmm. Can I still be curious about someone else? Uh, part of belonging is listening to the other. Mm -hmm. uh, and of course, the other is largely not real. The, uh, the other is largely a fabric, a fabrication. Um, and, and everyone from the police to uh, the Trump supporter, to the Bernie supporter, to the returning citizens, to the immigrant, to the refugee, everybody's trying to belong. And yeah. can we actually imagine creating belonging where we don't have to other? So, so we don't take joy in someone else's injury. Yeah. It's not saying we won't have to sort of fight with people. That's not saying that everything, but can we hold on unconditionally to each other's humanity? Uh, and the only way to do that in any real way is to be willing to listen to each other. And this doesn't mean agreeing. Uh, and so it's important for, for me, for you to know what your value is, what your foundation is. But that's just to, to start. Because then it's important for you to know what someone else's value and foundation is. And if we go more deeply, we find that not only am I not in always in agreement with the, the other person, I'm not always in agreement with myself. Yeah. Uh, and I have multiple selves and part of belonging is not just belonging to each other and belonging to the earth, it's belonging to ourselves, to multiple parts of ourselves, uh, mm -hmm. which othering flattens not only the quote unquote the other, but also flattens us, we become two dimensional. Yeah. Um... I feel like you are extending such a generous and gracious invitation to me, John. Uh, truly, I really do. Um, and it's a hard invitation because I think many of the uh, features of our structure and our sector in particular are wholly oppositional. It's, um, I recently read this amazing uh, start of a book uh, where they describe it as problematizing a problem. Like we are so good at like naming the harm, naming the problem, excavating um, the the villain and the culprit, the beneficiary of our pain, and we're not as good at dreaming and seeding what the future possible, what the portal to the future actually looks like. Of setting the groundwork for that. And I, um, I, my hunch is that you probably spend a lot of times in time in rooms where people are like, you're just so much better than I am. <laughs> where, you, where you're like, 
um, one, there's like such a, even via, via Zoom, like a deep calming um, and concise nature to your presence, but also a, a, like a very clear, um, you're clearly so uh, morally clear about what's necessary for this future that we want. Uh, and I wonder for us in this moment, you know, you in our prep talked a lot about like the 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 opportunity for narrative to be a guiding force. I, I want you to tell us a story um, about where you saw belonging happen. Like what what is the story that you tell people that makes belonging a possibility and an option? Well, there are many stories, and I and I one of the things I I, I hope this the communicators on this webinar that um, people would tell better stories, and mm -hmm. and right now there's there's sort of an arc to stories. It's like there's a tension, there's a villain, there's a challenge, and then you overcome the tension and you conquer the villain. Well, do we have to have a villain? Mm -hmm. uh, villain, you know. And what we do, mention, you mentioned earlier, Karma, about white supremacy. White supremacy is is real and it's deadly, not just to uh, people of color, but to white people and to the planet itself. The, the problem is in a way that we largely equate white supremacy with white people. Mm -hmm. and that's a mistake. White mm -hmm. supremacy is an ideology. Mm -hmm. uh, it's an ideology that actually shapes much of this country, um, shapes many of our institutions, many of our practices, many of our worldviews, and it actually affects all of us, not equally, but it affects all of us. Uh, and all and most of us, including people who are phenotypically white, are the victims of it. Uh, but so I often say we need to be hard on structures and more generous toward people. Mm. We tend to be either generous on structures or soft on structures and hard on people. Mm. Uh, you know, so um, why do you think that is, John? Like, what is um, what makes it easy? You would think that it would be easier to be hard on structures and systems because they are, um, there is no human tension, right? Like you're not hurting somebody. You can't hurt somebody. So I'm wondering like what you think it is that makes it easier for us to be hard on people. Well, that's a great question. I think part of it is that we are uh, what uh, Charles Tilley called methodological individualists. That's a big phrase. But what he's basically saying is that we don't see structures. We don't, we don't, part of our narrative makes us blind to structures. We talk about being race blind, which we're not. We're structurally blind. So we don't see all the things, even in our own lives. And there's a whole lot of research to support this, what people call attribution error. It's like, um, and they, they did a thing where they asked people, where they had people come in and watch a basketball team shoot baskets. And they told them before they came in that it was bad lighting, the basket was at the wrong height, uh, the floor was uneven. Uh, and then they, the team shot and missed a lot of baskets. And they asked them to explain why the team were missing so many baskets. Almost no one made reference to the structures. Like at least this team is just a bad team. They don't know how to shoot. So we are just blind to structures. And that's part of American individualism. It's actually, frankly, even part of the, the narrative, you know, that we all uh, can do and, and be whatever we want to be. Um, and so, so here's a story. There are many stories, and let's um, tell you two quick stories. Yeah. No, think about, I think it's uh, Maddie, who's the uh, 
um, head of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, most, um, I guess, as many of the listeners to engaged in social justice don't think of the military in this way, but he's, he's the top military person in the United States. He just did something. Uh, he called his counterpart in China um, and, and basically said, this was, uh, I think, in December, then again in January, um, China was afraid, not afraid maybe the wrong word, concerned that the United States was planning on attacking it, uh, a secret attack. And Matty, if I'm saying his name correctly, General Matty, he was concerned that China might do a preemptive strike before we stroke, struck them and essentially start a war. So what did he do? He calls up his counterpart. He calls up the person who's institutionally the number one enemy of the United States. And he says to him something to the fact of, you know me, you can trust me. I can trust you. You can, you, you can trust me. We're not getting ready to attack you. And if the United States decides to engage in a secret attack on China, I will personally call you myself to tell you. Mm. You can trust me. He's saying, why should I trust you? You know, you have hundreds of missiles pointed at us and we have thousands of missiles pointed at you. We have a whole fleet of, of you know, uh, guns and warplanes and ships all surrounding the South China Sea. Every day we're in some kind of tension. He's saying, you can trust me as a human being. And it worked. Now, and, and as the news hit the United States, people, some people were saying, we dodged that bullet literally. But other people were saying, this guy should be impeached. I mean, this guy should be court-martialed and, uh, and maybe executed. This is treason. He turned his back on America. And in some ways he's saying, I'm being a patriot. I love this country. And I don't want us to fall into uh, a needless war. But the point is, is that he had a relationship with this guy who institutionally is his enemy. Yeah. He went outside the box. Some people say outside the box. Some people say it was in the box to call him up personally mm. and say, you know, you know, since I got your back, I'm not going to let the United States engage in a secret attack on you. And he may have avoided a war and even a world war. Uh, that's an amazing thing. Uh, Gives you just one other example. And Robert Sapowski in a book called Behave, he talks about the need to recognize each other's sacred symbols. Mm. First of all, we have to know what the other side's sacred symbol is, and usually we don't. So think about Nelson Mandela. He's been in prison for you know, 20 years. In, in Soweto, there's uprising because the South African government is saying, all instructions of the school will happen in the language of the oppressor, Afrikaner. Mm -hmm. And the Blacks in South Africa are like, no, we're not, we're not learning Afrikaner. We're not learning the, the masters or the uh, language. At the same time, Nelson Mandela is going to the people who is imprisoning him and he's saying, teach me Afrikaner. Mm -hmm. Teach me your language and your culture. I, I need to understand you. He's in prison. And as a result of that, the, his, his people who are in prison him say, they basically say, you know, the hard work that you have, that you have to do in prison, we're going to give you a pass. You don't have to do that work anymore. We see your humanity. And he says, no. He says, I don't want to pass. He says, unless you actually extend this to everyone in prison, you can't extend it to me. 
Uh, and so the, the, he, he's, he's bridging. And then when he gets out of prison, uh, the president of South Africa and Nelson Mandela have a conversation. And the conversation is, can they stop the killing? Can they stop the war? Can they stop? Uh, and they both think it's a good idea. But the president of South Africa says, I can't do this by myself. You have to meet with the head of the South African army. And the head of the South African army is an avowed public racist. He says that black people are monkeys, that they can never govern. He also believes that whites are superior and that they can win this war. But he has to meet with Nelson Mandela. He goes to Nelson Mandela's house. I won't go through the whole thing. Nelson Mandela asks them, would you like something to drink? This general says, yes. He's sitting on the couch. Nelson Mandela goes in the kitchen. He has servants, but he goes in the kitchen and prepares the general tea. He comes out and serves the general tea. Mm -hmm. uh, and then, which makes the general very uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And then instead of sitting on a chair across from the general, he sits on the couch next to the general. Yeah. This is, they're killing each other's people, right? Yeah. They're not <laughs> friends. Uh, yeah. Then the, this makes the general very uncomfortable. And he says, okay, let's get on with it. I, you know, I'm not here for niceties. Uh, I'm here to talk about a ceasefire. And the general's intention is to deny a ceasefire. We're not going to have a ceasefire. We're going to win this war. And Nelson Mandela says, fine, let's have the conversation. For the next three and a half hours to have the conversation, it all takes place in Africander, mm. in general's native language. Uh, and the general leaves, his, his entourage is like, did you tell that Nelson Mandela off? And the general says, I don't know if I like Nelson Mandela, but he can convince anyone of anything. We're going to have a ceasefire. Mm -hmm. uh, now he, now neither one had given up their troops, had given up their guns. They were still capable of fighting, but the shared humanity. And there's movies about this. And the last one I mentioned, Mandela, yeah. when he went to the the rugby game, uh, the the uh, he knew that that was the sacred symbols of white supremacists in South Africa. And he shows up at the game at the World Championship, and. And he gets them to sing the, the national anthem for the ANC, which is, you know, so it's, it's like, there's all these, and these are powerful examples. These are not just, you know, people disagreeing over, uh, uh, you know, zoning. I mean, these, these are people at war with each other. Um, yeah. So yes, there, and there are thousands of stories once we started looking for them. And the, the part of the, the provocation is how do we engage in these stories ourselves? How do we engage in seeing someone else's humanity and recognizing someone else's sacred symbols and, and listening to what someone else's fears and aspirations are, uh, not to discount our own, uh, but to open up, um, mm -hmm. say to someone, I don't agree with you, uh, but I care about you. Mm. Uh, one other thing, my father, this Christian minister died recently. And I love my father so much and my mom. It's just, um, but I went home one year and he was upset about, I forget, it's either abortion or gay marriage. And, and, and again, I was very much in favor of it, uh, right to choose and gay marriage. We stayed up all night talking. Um, and it wasn't to convince him. And it wasn't for him to convince me. It was to listen to each other. Mm. The next day, my mom came down to breakfast and she said, what did you and your dad talk about? He was so happy this morning when he woke up. Mm -hmm. uh, and for the next year, I couldn't engage in debates because I felt debates was like 
this us versus them, winner take all. And it wasn't really an inquiry. It wasn't really curious. It wasn't really generous about the human being that I was engaging with. Um, so those are just some stories. Yeah, um, I love them. Uh, and we're gonna now look at this is my opportunity, John. I love them, and it's easy to fall in love, and it's hard to stay in love. This is a thing that I asked. <laughs> I said to John in our prep session, and I think it's an important thing that falling in love is um, so much fun at the beginning because there's a newness. And then there is the listening and the complexity and the, the thing of people coming together uh, and um, showing and sharing their whole selves and the complexity of coming together. And that, for me, as I hear you tell stories of belonging, it is a, a sacred practice of coming together, of choosing to uh, be in relationship, of choosing to trust, of choosing to share, um, and I am, I have a hunch and feeling that like from in movement space and progressive movement space, but also like in all movement space where there does feel like there's a contest for power, right? Like in each of these stories, I, it's hard for me to set aside the fact that like people of color have to like adapt to, uh, white people, mm. um, it's hard for me to set aside the idea that like these are still like mega institutions and people suffer, mm -hmm. right? Um, and I think that we carry along this um, like a deeply embedded that winning uh, has become the organizing framework as opposed to belonging. Right. And I don't, I, I wonder like, I want to ask you a question that may, for me, it feels like a silly question, but I'm just going to ask it anyway, because I'm one of those people who like, no question is a bad question. <laughs> um, but what is step one for people who are open uh, to a different way of engaging, of being where the fight isn't the point of departure? Uh, what is the step one? Well, Carmen, a couple of things. So I love the the, the, the phrase and the um, uh, falling in love is easy, staying in love is sub work, is hard work. Uh, but I go further in terms of belonging. Belonging to me is not, um, in some ways, is not really a choice. Uh, we belong to the earth. Mm. We could, we could choose to pretend like we don't belong. We could choose to pretend like the earth the earth is just a inert land that we that's there for drilling and and taking stuff from and cutting down the forest and uh it's there for us to exploit um mm. but we suffer as well the earth will survive it's not entirely clear that we will survive mm -hmm. uh because when we are doing harm to the earth and and, and all the different species we only have this is our this is our home it's like burning down our home and it's like well we're going to sleep tonight. I don't know. We just burned down a home. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Why don't you say something? <laughs> you know, I, I, if I'd have known that, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have burned it down. Uh, <laughs> we are already connected. You yeah. know, every tradition from Africa to Native American to, to you know, uh, talks about our interconnectedness. 
That's mm -hmm. the heart. That's why I started off talking about literally we're born connected to another human being. It's not a, it's, it's not a choice. It's like, that's oh, right. um, you know, I, I like you. So umbilical cord, I'm a, you know, it's like that the, the part of the, the surge of the, the, of white supremacy is this based on false connection, disconnections. It's saying we're not connected to the earth. It's saying we're not connected to each other. It's saying the mind and body is not connected. Mm -hmm. uh, and, um, and then it goes further saying black people and white people are not connected. I mean, literally at the, the height of scientific racism, there are fights about Darwin saying there's only one humanity. It's like, no, that's scary. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the the uh, um, uh, what people fight now about Social Security is the social part of it. The fact that we are connected with each other. We're still in Zoom because the pandemic is trying to teach us the lesson that we refuse to learn. Yeah, we are connected. Mm. We are connected. That's like, okay, let's build a wall, let's ground the airplanes, let's stop the economy. Pandemic virus keeps moving because mm -hmm. we are connected. And there was a, a play and a movie of some years ago, Six Degrees of Separation, that basically says that's how separate we are. And now people say with the internet and all that, it's two degrees of separation. We are profoundly connected. Uh, and it doesn't always feel good. Yeah. It's, it's not a... It's not a you know, James Baldwin says, you know, some of my countrymen find that unfair and sometimes so do I, but none of us can do anything about it. We are connected. Yeah. Uh, and, um, and can we learn to love that connection? Can we learn to live that connection? Can we learn to deal with the, the tough things? Uh, and power is part of it. Uh, but I would say just, it's really important to recognize that it's, the world, the future, the dreaming that you're talking about, Carmen, which is so important, has to be a dreaming that includes all of us. I know. And although white, many white people are complicit in white supremacy, uh, they're not the masters of the ship. Not, yeah, no, I, that's something I feel like uh, a great, it's so funny, I have, um, that this is gonna be a non sequitur, but I feel like it might be helpful. Um, there's a really interesting conversation happening in the Latino community about like, who is, are you a woman of color, right? Like if you present like I present, which is like a pretty fair skinned Latina uh, and you move around the world and can be um, like, have a very different racial experience. How do you both name the access and privilege that you have as well as your proximity and closeness to like a cultural and ethnic experience but that you have different presenting power. Uh, and for me, it has been the, that conversation has been the richest conversation um, about this thing that you're describing uh, in which we need to take responsibility or like um, name that, like name very clearly that white supremacy and white people aren't the same. That like, frankly, many perpetrators of white supremacy are people of color. And that's like a complicated idea, but it's a thing that we need to name. That's exactly um, But we are, are like clumsy and uncomfortable doing it. And I'm like practicing doing it more and more publicly because I think it's a necessary, it would be a lie. It would be a lie to tell the arc of a story that was so neat and um, 
where I didn't benefit from having a fair skin mom and I didn't benefit from, you know, like all of the the structural symbols of white supremacy. And many of us in these conversations do and are are, uh, put on a path where we need our story to be neat, but we're not human when that's the case. That's exactly. And we like really put that aside. Um, I know that I'm supposed to be asking for Q and A, and I want to keep talking. <laughs> I want to keep. I want to keep this happening. So for folks who are on, um, please um, share your Q and A, uh, and we will make sure that it comes onto the screen and that we ask your question. Um, so there's a click on the live Q and A button, and we'll bring you into the uh, conversation with us. Um, but as folks come up with their questions, um, John, I uh, so we started off talking about sort of this arc of like from problematizing the problem and like living in this tension of wanting to be in the fight to understanding our humanity and remembering that we're all interconnected and connected to each other to belonging. Mm-hmm. Um, when we belong, like when, um, it's so funny, my, my orientation is always like a winning orientation. So I'm gonna say it the way that I would normally say it. Um, when belonging is true for us, how will you spend your days? Interesting. Um, first of all, you're likely to spend your days communing mm-hmm. with other expressions of life, human and otherwise, the earth itself. Um, you're also likely to uh, recognize how we other certain people systematically. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, I lived in San Francisco for a number of years and uh, across from Dolores Park. And there was a woman there, uh, Sarah, who was homeless, unhoused. And we had, we developed a relationship. I talked to her. She was disheveled unexpectedly. Um, She was uh, uh, very much overweight. She was, uh, uh, and I came home from a visit and um, and uh, I saw a friend on the street and the friend came up to me and she said, John, you're back. And we hugged each other and we were back and forth. And then I turned and walked down the street and I saw Sarah, this homeless woman. And, and, she's, and when I would see her, I'd say, I'd always say to her, how are you doing, Sarah? Do you need anything today? And then I used to give her some money. And so this day I saw her and I said, how are you doing, Sarah? Uh, do you need anything today? And she looked down at the ground and then she looked up at me and she said, can I get a, can I get a hug? Mm. Uh, and even as I say it, I, I can feel tears in the back of my eyes. And I hesitated. Mm. And uh, she wanted to belong. She, wanted, she didn't want just me. She wanted to be recognized and embraced as a human being. Mm. Uh, and I had all these reasons. Oh, oh, she probably has fleas. She probably has this. She has probably that. Uh, and I hugged her. And um, so part of belonging to me, and, and I think belonging is not just what I feel. It's like, am I willing to actually practice that, perform that uh, in the world? Uh, am I willing to, to acknowledge that everyone belongs? It's not just me. And the thing about privilege, we all have privilege, mm-hmm. especially people on this call. 
I'm, you can't see me, I'm 6'3". Uh, every inch you are, you are over, uh, over six feet for a man in the United States, your, your uh, life expectancy in terms of income goes up $150,000. Uh, so I, you know, that's, you know, that's just because I'm tall, you know? Uh, and the question is, what do I do with that? Mm. Uh, how do I, you know, um, and so are we willing to extend? Are we willing to make space? Are we willing to attack those things, not people, those things that deny our connection, those things that would dehumanize, the things that cause that, cause Sarah to be homeless in the first place. Mm. Um, and so that's how I try to spend my day. And, but do it not just out of um, indignation, but also really grounded in love. Uh, I mean, I feel grateful to Sarah for having to, letting me have that experience. Mm. Uh, that's one of the experiences I'll probably carry with me to my grave. Uh, um, she extended that to me. Mm. We have a question now. I'm um, Woodson, do you want to join their conversation? Hello. Can you all see me? Yeah, we can see you. Thank you. Thank you for both for, for taking the time. I, I you know, Carmen, I, in hearing you speak, I, I really reflect um, some of that struggle and some of the difficulty in, in uh, approaching um, this work and, and, you know, our society and culture, really, with this sense of belonging. Um, Mr. Powell, I'm kind of curious for you, I mean, thinking about this versus, you know, winning um, versus belonging or kind of um, for the, the maybe younger folks, kind of this this um, desire to be antagonistic about it potentially, and um, maybe in, uh, you know on the other hand, I think about my my grandmother, um, an old woman in Appal uh, Appalachia, who's you know fatigued by a lot of this, um, and you know a conversation about belonging or approach um, that seeks belonging might seem um, particularly fatiguing um, when already dejected or already fatigued. So I'm curious as you approach the work. Um, and you think about that not only as a strategy, um, but also as a, um, you know, a thing that is good, you know, and, and, and embracing humanity. Um, you know, how do you overcome that fatigue um, and broach conversations with, with fatigue in mind? Right. A well, great question, Wilson. I appreciate it. So two quick things. First of all, um, it, when we lean into belonging and acknowledge it, it gives us energy. Mm. Um, again, I'll, I'll stories, your communicators. So first of all, I would say be very careful to actually be clear on what you're communicating. Sometimes it's just an information. So uh, uh, Sean talked about a press release or whatever. Uh, and sometimes we think about um, an analysis. We do a study and then it's like, oh, like, let's put the analysis up on a website. Uh, that's fine, I'm a, I'm a researcher, uh, but that's not really deep communication. We need narratives, we need stories to hold us. Uh, and we need uplifting stories. So I'll give you one quick example. When Black Panther came out, we rented out a theater here in Oakland and gave out tickets, uh, about 800 tickets to the community. Um, disproportionately Black, but the whole community. Uh, those tickets were gone in like 15 minutes. It's like, I don't even know how they figured out we were doing this because you know, uh, most, of, most of the people getting the tickets were from Oakland and we were in Berkeley. Um, and then we had a, a conversation and in one of the events, the, the rector came uh, and these were disproportionately young black men. And some of them said it was the first time in their lives, 23 and 24 year olds, where they had come to an event where they were celebrated, mm -hmm. where, they, where they belong, 
but they weren't there talking about someone being killed, someone being evicted. That's real. We have to deal with that. But we also just the celebration of the beauty of being, uh, uh, you know, Wakanda. Uh, and, um, and literally, there were young men in the, in the theater who cried. It's like the first time in my life when I feel like I see, and think about the movie. The movie itself was about belonging. And it was, a, and it was interesting, it was a beautiful movie, right? It's complicated. So Killmonger, everybody liked Killmonger. It's like, that's not the typical story. The story is the villain is bad, you kill him and we cheer. We weren't cheering and apparently Killmonger really, didn't really die. Uh, <laughs> uh, but the point is, is that uh, it created a space where it complicated, who is the enemy? Uh, when at one point, uh, the Black Panther saying, you know, I care about the people here. And he says, uh, Killmonger says, all people are from Africa. Uh, aren't they your people too? Mm. What do you draw the line? He said, you mm -hmm. don't. You have to care. You can't just care about the small we. Uh, and that movie and that experience was so uplifting. So mm. as communicators, how do you tell uplifting stories? How do you tell stories that bring people in and not just call people out? But, but you don't mince it. You don't avoid difficult questions, but you reframe them in a way that the way the common was talking about, where you invite people to a radically imagine a future where we all belong. Uh, and if we do that well, if you do that as communicators, you'll give your grandmother energy. Um, mm. Thank you so much, Woodson, for the question. Thank you so thank much, you. Bob. Uh, we have a question from Bob. Yeah, you, you touched on this when you talked about Sarah. Um, but I'd like a little bit more perspective on, on a different kind of otherness. So I work for AARP Foundation, and we serve low-income older adults. And we struggle with um, distancing ourselves from them. They're an other sometimes. Um, what kind of strategies would you suggest for um, embracing the people that we actually serve? They're not the enemy. We're trying to help them, but still, sometimes right. there's distance. So... Thank you for the question, Bob. And it's, you know, I, I mentioned earlier, and people who know me know that I talk about my family a lot because I have this incredibly loving family. I'm six of nine, so, so there's a yeah. lot of us. Uh, and we, you know, we don't all get, all get along, uh, but we all love each other. Uh, and part of belonging is not something we just extend to someone. It's, it's not something we just do for someone. It's not as important as service is, and ministry requires service, but it's actually, acknowledging that people have a right to co-create the world in which we live in. It's actually acknowledging agency and power and responsibility for all of us. Um, and when we invite that, when we create a structure where that's there, beautiful things happen. So it's not, so again, I would take that. And, and it's, it's not just interpersonal, it's also structural. We live in very segregated spaces, not just segregated by race and income, but it's segregated by age. We put all the old people off on a home. I remember years ago as my parents were aging and I was living in Florida and they were living in Detroit. And I thought, well, maybe they should move to Florida where it's warmer. And then we drove, they came down to Miami and we drove around and we drove past all of these senior centers where there were old people essentially waiting to die. Yeah. And it's the saddest thing. And it's like, uh, uh, this is not the way to go out. I mean, some people have to. But how do we actually, uh, my dad used to say, you know, we're kept here on earth as long as we are of service 
to God. Mm. He's, uh, and so when he was getting older, like 97, 98, and his body was starting to break down, and I asked him, I said, so dad, why do you think God is keeping you here? What's, what service are you rendering now? Mm. He says, I'm teaching my children how to take care of people. Mm. Uh, and he was. Uh, so just like that woman taught me something, Sarah taught me something. It wasn't just I was giving her money. She was giving me something. There was mm. some reciprocity. So belonging is not one way. It's co-creating. So how do you actually, and, and when people feel like they're contributing, they feel better. Mm. Uh, so I don't know if that's an adequate answer to your question, Bob, but it's like creating a co-created space and break down these barriers, these, these places where we send all old people here and send you know, black people here and send Latinos there. That's a problem. The structures are a problem. Uh, they deny that we belong to each other. They deny the fact that we're disconnected. Um, you know that story in, in, the, in the Old Testament of the Good Samaritan, when, when people are passing uh, uh, someone on the road and they refuse to stop. And then one Good Samaritan stops and someone says, aren't you worried what would happen to you uh, if you stop and help a stranger? And he says, I'm more worried what would happen to me if I don't stop. Yeah. I feel like that is an important um, closing moment. Like what happens if we don't stop for each other? What happens if we don't see each other? What if what happens if we don't create room to hear and listen and learn from each other? Uh, John, I wanna thank you so, so much for spending this time with me. It's such a treat. And um, I hope it's not our last time getting to share Zoom this Zoom world space together, but I hope we find an opportunity to spend some time in real life with each other. I would, Thank love, I would love that. Yeah. Thank Sean, you. you're on mute. I am, and it's always going to happen. <laughs> it's just inevitable. I guess I needed a break because I needed a laugh because this has been an extraordinary hour. I think if you had all had the chance to see the chat, I think this has been a deeply meaningful and moving hour for all of us. And I hope that if one of the messages that comes through from the just the grace and good cheer and generosity that you both have shared is that we who work in the communication shops of these big foundations and nonprofits where we serve them through consultancies, as the case may be, we are in the belonging business. That is really going to be a challenge for us. We need to think of ourselves as community builders. And I am deeply grateful to you, John and, and Carmen, for the good example that you have given us and the gift of this last hour and all the wisdom that's packed up in. And I think each of us is going to take some time to, to process that. 